you for our Bible reading. Morning, church. It's Bible reading time. So we're continuing on in the book of Matthew, chapter 21, starting at verse 23. So Matthew 21, verse 23 to 46. So this is, this is Jesus. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons. <clears throat> and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of the father of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Here, another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first. And they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is his heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? 
they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. <clears throat> Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvellous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Jeanette. Good morning, everyone. Great to see you, and especially good morning, kids. Uh, I know Bella's playing up the back there. I see Faith. Daisy is around somewhere. There she is, behind Ian. <laughs> so, hello. It's great to see you. Um, I'm, the, I'm Dan, by the way, if we haven't met before. I'm the pastor here and one of the elders, together with Andrew, over here in the middle. I uh, want to start by telling you about an experiment that uh, scientists have been doing for, for decades now. It's a psychological experiment. It's called the ultimatum game. Okay, Here's how it works. I've got here a crisp $10 note. Okay, Let's say I come and I give that $10 here to Nigel. And uh, the way this works is... <laughs> This is a great game, says Nigel. Fantastic. Now, Nigel has to split this $10 with Rosie. Okay? That's the, that's the game. That's how it works. Nigel gets to pick how much money he keeps and how much money he gives to Rosie. So, he can be very generous and can give all $10 to her if he wants. Nigel, you could do that. Um, or you could split it 5-5. Five, five. You could split it 7-3, however you want to do it. You could even give her a measly dollar if you want but any amount between a dollar and ten dollars. Now, the catch is, Rosie is free to reject his offer, however great or small it might be. And if Rosie rejects the offer, then they both leave with nothing. That's the ultimatum game. So, Nigel, how much would you offer? I just want to make it clear, by the way, my ten dollars is not on the line in this game. <laughs> but how much, how much would you offer? <laughs> of that $10, hypothetically, <laughs> if, uh, if you were going to split it with Rosie. Five. Five? Split it five, five. Rosie, would you take that? Yeah, yeah take that. Both leave with five bucks. Yep, that's the common thing to do. So uh, that sounds about right, doesn't it? That's rational. Both leave with five. Rosie, what if Nigel left you with just one dollar? What would you do? He's going to take nine. You're going to take one. Okay, why would you accept it? It's more than nothing. That's right. Now, that's the rational response, isn't it, to this ultimatum game. To have, I'm tempted just to flick this to you because that's a good response. Yeah, there you go. So, so, yeah, whatever Nigel offers, just take it because it's more than you came in with, isn't it? Uh, except when scientists have, have run this game, they've done this for decades, they've found that the vast majority of people, if they're offered anything less than about four bucks, so anything less than half, they'll reject it. 
Why? Well, it's, I mean, black and white, logic, rationality says accept what you can get, like the very clever Rosie decided to do. Um, but uh, most people are guided not just by logic, are they? They're also guided by a sense of, I want things to be fair. They're guided by a sense of, well, if I'm going to leave here with basically nothing, then so are you. <laughs> right? And that's what the ultimatum game shows us. And it does go to show that the purpose of the experiment is to go to show that we aren't always just guided by rationality, are we? We aren't just guided by black and white facts. There are deeper things going on for us in the things that we accept or that we reject. So, for example, buying a car. Think about the car that you've bought. Now, no doubt some of you are just like robot automatons and you've gone, I bought this car because it's reliable and I can get the parts for it and all of that sort of stuff. But if you're anything like me, then you also make decisions based on things like the colour. Right? Now, we don't see the colour of the car when we're driving it around, but the colour matters, doesn't it? <laughs> we, the sound of the engine. Uh, things like it just, it just feels right. It feels good to drive. Or you can't quantify it. It's not facts. But, but it's just there. It's subjective. We make decisions based on what we accept or reject, not only on the facts, but these deeper subjective things as well. And it's the case when it comes to rejecting Christianity as well. So someone who rejects the claims of Jesus, who, who rejects Christianity, might be doing so because of facts and, and black and white things and objective things, right? So, for example, intellectual questions like, can I trust the Bible? Is the Bible reliable? Are the translations that we have actually reliable to the original manuscripts? That's an intellectual question, isn't it? That's a knowledge-based question. That can be quantified to a large extent. Or something like these historical claims around Jesus' death and his resurrection. Are those legitimate historical claims? Now, those are good questions. Uh, I think, by the way, that there are very good answers to those questions. I wouldn't be up here if I didn't think that was the case. Uh, but, but rarely is it just the intellectual questions that cause someone to reject Jesus. Do you hear what I'm saying? It, it, there are deeper things as well. And if you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, which, by the way, very glad that you're here uh, because um, I assume, actually, that you are here because you want to think through these things, right? Um, you're here in a church so that you can think through these questions. Why is it that you might be rejecting Jesus? Why is it that you might not be convinced about the Christian faith? Uh, and, and I want to put to you that, of course, there may be objective logic, rational, historical sort of things that are on your mind, but no doubt there are also other things, deeper things, subjective things. Why is it that you are rejecting Jesus? You could even say, if all of it ends up being true, right? If you, we, can, we can put the facts in front of you and, and work it all out and show you, yep, historically, logically, whatever, it's all true, would you then follow Jesus, is a way of putting it. And so that's, we're going to think through that this morning. What are the reasons why someone might not? But this is also helpful for you if you are a Christian here this morning. And uh, we want to reach the lost, don't we? Yes? <laughs> this is part of what we're on about as a church. Knowing Jesus, loving his church, and what? Thank you. Yes, this is, I've got to keep communicating our vision. It's got to get in, right? Knowing Jesus, loving his church, reaching the lost. Yes. And um, again, when we go and we want to bring the gospel to our non-Christian friends or our non-Christian family, 
we want to hit the mark, don't we? We want to, we want to say things that are going to actually get to the reasons why someone is choosing not to embrace Jesus as their saviour and their Lord. And so understanding what's really going on in the psyche of someone rejecting Jesus is vitally important. We're going to look at that this morning. There's another reason why this is important, though, and it is that not everyone who starts as a Christian stays as a Christian. We all know someone who has sort of fallen away, who said at one point in their life that they were a follower of Jesus, and now they're not anymore. And the the sad reality is that 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 actually could be any one of us one day. What might cause you to walk away from Jesus? What are the reasons that in another 5 or 10 or 20 years or whatever, you might hear coming out of your mouth, for which you're saying, well, yeah, yeah, I once did the church thing, I once did the Jesus thing, not anymore, and it's because dot, dot, dot. I'll tell you, it won't just be intellectual reasons, there'll be other reasons. And so this morning, as we come into the Gospel of Matthew, we're here in chapter 21, we're going to see Jesus interacting with some opponents to the faith, and we're going to see three reasons why people might reject Jesus. And they go beyond the knowledge things, they go beyond the the facts and evidence things. They're, They're more subjective reasons why someone might reject Jesus. And there's more than these three, obviously, but these are the three that the Lord is putting in front of us this morning to consider. And I believe He has good reasons for doing that. We'll see as we get going. How about we pray? We'll dig in. Lord God, thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you that you have preserved this account of Jesus actually interacting with real people in real time and space uh, for us to engage with this morning. And Lord, we pray that you might do a work in each of our minds and each of our hearts to see what's really happening here, to see the Son for who he is, uh, and to respond to him rightly. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, uh, open your Bible, if you could, please, to Matthew 21, or even better, keep it open from when we read it a moment ago. I'll give us a bit of a map on uh, where we're up to. Do you remember this, if you were here a few weeks ago? This is the way that good stories tend to be structured. Remember, we talked about Star Wars and how that's a good story, and uh, this is how it tends to be structured. Um, Art imitates life. Art imitates life. So real stories, real things that happen in life tend to follow a bit of this structure as well. Maybe you even look at that and you, look at, you think about your life and you go, well, here's those different phases of my life story. Art imitates life. And so here we are in this true story of Jesus. And, and we talked about this as the whole Gospel of Matthew. But even here, just in chapters 21 to 23, that's where we camped out at the moment, this structure is happening, Okay orientation. Here we go. The setup, Jesus enters Jerusalem. The people receive him shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, and they lay down the palm fronds. You can see in the background there, here's Jesus, the humble king, entering his town, his city, Jerusalem. Then there's a complication. Things start to go wrong. Jesus comes to the temple, and what does he see? He sees horrendous sin happening. He sees people, remember from a couple of weeks ago, who have replaced the court of the Gentiles with a marketplace. Instead of allowing people to come and worship him, they are blocking the Gentiles from coming to worship. Instead, they are doing just what suits them and what builds themselves up rather than what builds the kingdom. And Jesus is incensed. 
He clears the temple. He lays down the gauntlet against false religion. And then as we saw last week, he goes and he curses a fig tree to show that this false religion embodied by the temple is going to wither and die and be overthrown. Now, do you think that the religious leaders of Israelite religion are happy about that? <laughs> these leaders of the temple, these teachers in the temple, there's no way. And so now we're hitting the point of rising tension. And this is going to continue over the next few chapters. We're in this, this confrontation now between Jesus and the religious leaders. And it takes place where else but the temple. Have a look here at verse 23. And we're going to see the very first issue, the very first reason why people might reject Jesus. And the first reason is this. Authority. Authority. It's an authority issue. And it comes out in the elder's question, verse 23. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Right, you hear it there. And, and uh, these are men, by the way, who know plenty about authority. Uh, it says here that they're the, the uh, chief priests and the elders of the people. That's Matthew's code word for a group called the Sanhedrin. You've heard of the Sanhedrin before? Sanhedrin just means council. Okay, So it's, it's the council that kind of rules over the Israelites at this point in history. And, and they're subjugated to the Roman Empire. They're sort of like they handle Jewish affairs in the empire. So they're under authority, but also they have a lot of authority. They know plenty about authority. And so I want you to imagine as Jesus is here, he's teaching in the temple as he ordinarily does. He's a rabbi. And so up come these men, these elders, these chief priests. They're the sort of guys that when they walk into the room, everyone knows who they are. Okay, They've got these long flowing robes with golden trim on it. Uh, they're carrying their Old Testament scrolls under their arms. You can just tell these are the guys who know their stuff and these are the guys who are in charge. They come up to Jesus and they say, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you that authority? Now, you can hear it in their tone, can't you? This isn't a real question. <laughs> this, this is not a legitimate like, hey, we're, we're just on a journey trying to figure these things out and... You know, Jesus, just, just tell us, you know, where did you get all these new ideas from? No, <laughs> these guys have already made up in their mind, haven't they? In fact, what they're saying is, you don't have the authority. We've got the authority. So what pretender is the one that set you up in charge of this place that we're actually in charge of? They're not thinking to themselves, I wonder if Jesus is right. They're asking, what gave you the right? It's a confrontation. And, and what they're trying to do here is, of course, trying to trap Jesus in his words. So they ask a question, um, you know, who gave you the authority? Really, they're hoping for an answer that will enable them to turn the tables on Jesus. But Jesus can't be tricked. This is the one who, in John's Gospel, we learn, doesn't entrust himself to people because he knows what's in the heart of people. This is the one whose gaze penetrates the division between joint and marrow and soul and spirit. He can't be tricked, for goodness sake. And so look at his response in verse 24. Jesus answered them, I will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, 
then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. Oh, so, so you want to know who gave me the authority, do you? Okay, answer me this question. John the Baptist, right? You know John the Baptist? John's baptism. Was that under God's authority or was that just a person thing, a, a man thing? Was this authorized from God or was this just something done by people? Now, John the Baptist, if you don't remember, a few years earlier, he was out in the wilderness saying, prepare the way for the Lord, prepare the way for the Messiah to come. And, and people were coming, they were hearing his message and they were repenting. They were turning from their sin. That's what repentance means. Chucking a U-turn, chucking a U-E, okay? They're, they're chucking a U-E from their sin and they are crowding the banks of the Jordan River and coming down to be baptized. Now, baptism in that scenario is identifying with John and his message. It's identifying with the coming Messiah. It's preparing the way for him to be received. And so Jesus goes, was that a thing of God or was that just a thing of man? Was that something that God was doing or was that just like the Taylor Swift concert that we've had over the weekend, right? It's just like, it's a public spectacle and everyone's interested in it, but it's just a thing and it'll be done in a couple of days. Which one is it? Now, the Pharisees, I want you, the, the leaders of the, the people rather, I want you to notice what they do. Verse 25, have a look. It says that they discussed it among themselves. And isn't that interesting? These leaders of the people, these chief priests of the temple, they have seats in this place with a plaque with their name on them. And they withdraw from the conversation with this teacher in the temple make a little huddle, make sure that no one else can hear, and then they start to go like, okay, so if we say this, <laughs> then this will happen. If we say this, because here's how it goes, right? You can see their logic. If we say that this was from God, that John was baptizing people authorized by God, then, then of course, Jesus is going to ask us, well, why didn't you believe John and then trust in me? Okay, can't do that. So, what if we go the other way and we say it was just from man? Well, and they look around at all the people in the temple and they go, these people think that John is a prophet and these people think Jesus is the bee's knees. So I, I can't, we can't do that, right? They'll turn on us. We might lose our place in the Sanhedrin. This could turn into a real situation. And so these teachers of the law, these great leaders of the people, they come back to Jesus with a resounding, we don't know. <laughs> and isn't it marvelous? Isn't it marvelous just the way that Jesus turns the tables on them in that? But the, the problem here is that of course they know. Of course they know what they think about this matter. We don't know. That's such a lie, isn't it? Of course they know. They're 100% certain that this thing is from man, aren't they? So when they say, we don't know, it's like when you know, a child, a son or a daughter has broken the TV remote at home. Okay? And the TV is still playing cartoons. It hasn't changed. And here comes mum on the warpath. She's figured it out. She goes, who broke the remote? She knows, right? She knows because that remote is still like sticky and there are, there are, she shakes it and biscuit crumbs come out of the buttons, right? But the child goes, I don't know. Uh, everyone knows, <laughs> buddy, just be honest. <laughs> so that, that's the situation here. Jesus knows, right? So why would they say we don't know? Why would they say that? Ah, it's a smokescreen. It's, it's just to avoid the issue. 
Because of course, if they say from God, then, and of course, if they say from man, then it'll lead to awkward situations. So, oh, we don't know. And it means they don't get to trap Jesus like they planned, but at least they still get to keep their authority among the people, don't they? And after all, that's what they want. They fear the people. They want to keep their authority. Saying, I don't know, preserves the status quo. It rhymes, so it must be true. <laughs> right? That's what's happening here. And it's a lot like actually what I see on the Central Coast. I don't know if you've noticed this as well. Um, but some time ago, Sky and I were in at the hospital and I met a gentleman there who um, we were just sitting outside. I was having some lunch and he was sitting there with me. He's hooked up to drips and IVs and has like an ECG, KG, some acronym monitor on him. And, and he tells me that he's had a heart attack and that uh, he could die. Uh, and he's got all this monitoring. It could be a matter of days. It could be a matter of weeks. He's hoping that he escapes by the skin of his teeth. He's not in a good way, okay? And so I get talking with this guy, and I'm listening, as you do in these situations, and let him know that I'm a Christian, and we go back and forth, and, and I end up sharing the gospel with him over the course of about 20, 25 minutes. At the end of sort of sharing all this with him, Jesus died, he rose again, da, da, da. what do you think about all that? I just put to him, do you think all that's true? all this stuff about Jesus, do you think that's actually true? And you know what he says, right? I don't know. I don't know. And he sort of says it with a smirk, actually. I remember the look on his face because we're sitting outside and he looks off to the distance. He goes, I don't know, right? Like, as if I've found the way to get out of this awkward conversation with this annoying Christian guy. I just want to sit and, and you know, maybe die in the next few days in peace. I don't know. Um, but, but, his response there of, um, I don't know, it's, it's neither yes, it's neither no, it's just an escape hatch. And I hear that all the time from people from the Central Coast. Uh, not, not everyone, mind you. There are some people genuinely willing to engage about Jesus and these deeper spiritual things. Uh, but there are lots of people who just say, oh yeah, I don't know, I'm not sure. Or, uh, you know, to be honest, it doesn't matter. It doesn't care. I don't care. You heard that? Yeah. It's like, I think here on the coast, I know Rob always used to say this all the time, but it's, it's true. There is an apathy here. It's just like, we're, we're just cruisy, right? You stay out of my way and I'll stay out of yours. But the thing is, people that say, I don't know or I don't care, they know. They know. They've got an opinion on these things. And if you're really pushed, then if they were really honest, they'd say, no, I don't think these things are true. Of course not. But saying, I don't know, gets them out of the awkward situation. And I think that the reason people say that and they want to get out of the situation is that if this Jesus stuff was really true, then it would change everything in their life, wouldn't it? I mean, if you're a Christian, surely it's changed everything in yours, hasn't it? You're now a person under authority, Jesus' authority. And so this person, if, if they admit that this is true, if they accept that this is true, if they did the research and found that this was true, then, well, it wouldn't be them putting questions to Jesus anymore. It would be him putting questions to them. It wouldn't be them confronting Jesus. It would be Jesus confronting them. They would now have to live under his authority. And, you know, I don't want to think about that. So, I don't know. I don't care. If you hear someone say that, I don't know, I don't care, whatever, then, then it could be yourself, could be someone you know, then um, see it for what it is, okay? Uh, of course you know. <laughs> of course they know. Uh, and, and what this is, is, is it's not a knowledge issue. It's an authority issue. It's not wanting to submit 
to the authority of Jesus at the end of the day. It's that all of us, if left to our own devices, I mean, we want to be in charge of our own lives, don't we? Of course we do. That's the Western spirit. We want to make the decisions. And so this desire not to submit to Jesus' authority is the first reason that people reject Jesus. They reject his authority. But Jesus has more to say. The second reason why people might reject him is morality. Does that sound a bit unusual? Morality? You're telling me that people can be so good that they reject Jesus? Well, let's have a look. Jesus tells a story here. He begins it by saying, what do you think? In fact, this is just a continuation of the conversation with the religious leaders, okay? Uh, he, he's, he's just exposed what they really think about his authority. And there he instantly, the next second, goes on, okay, what do you think? I'm going to tell you a story. There are two sons. They live with their dad, perhaps on a small family vineyard. And these two sons, uh, one of their chores, kids, right? You have chores at home, Faith. I'm sure that you have some chores that you do for mum. And uh, they might be things like unpacking the dishwasher or sweeping the kitchen or taking out the rubbish. Uh, for these kids, their chores is go and collect the grapes. Two sons. And at some point, dad comes to the first son and he says, okay, son, time for you to go, please, and collect the grapes. Now, I want you to imagine here this son sitting there on a beanbag with an Xbox controller in his hand. And we're getting out of the first century now, aren't we? So whatever the first century equivalent is, uh, he's there with his Xbox and he's got the TV, his eyes are squares and he's glued to the TV. And, and he goes, no, get lost, Dad. He keeps just twiddling the thing. Uh, no, I'll do it later. And of course he's not going to do it later, right? Now, Dad leaves. And, okay, fine, leaves. And, and then a short moment later, the, the son thinks to himself, no, I should actually go and do it. <laughs> and so he turns the game off and he gets up and he puts his gloves on and he goes and he collects the grapes. That's the first son. He, he starts out as a no, but he ends up being a yes. Make sense? Here's the second son. So dad comes up. He's there playing his Xbox. Son, I need you to go, please, and bring in the grapes. And this son springs up out of the beanbag. He puts down his controller right in the charger, right, like a good son. And then he turns off the TV, turns off the Xbox. He unplugs it from the wall, really to show that he's serious about this. He's pulling on his garden gloves before dad leaves the room. And he's like, of course, dad. And we're all thinking, wow, this is the golden child, isn't it? <laughs> what parenting book did that dad read? Because that's what I want. <laughs> now, the problem is dad leaves and this son, he's like, He's looking around the doorway, just watching dad leave. And, and the moment he turns the corner, he's like, fantastic. And he throws off the gloves, plugs it all in, picks up the controller, and he's playing his Xbox again. He starts out a yes, but ends up a no. That's what the story shows us. And Jesus finishes the story with a question in verse 31. Which of these two sons did the will of his father? Which one? First one or second one? First one. And the rulers of the people, they're like, come on, <laughs> this is kindergarten. Of course, the first one, we can all see that. Uh, but once again, Jesus turns the table on these guys. He gets to the point of the story, verse 31, take a look. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you, that's John the Baptist, 
He came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your mind and believe him. He's talking to the religious leaders here, isn't he? And, and these guys, which son are they like? First one or second one? The second one. They look like a yes, don't they? Of all the people in the world, they look like a yes. These are the guys who had the scrolls tucked up under their arms. They know the Old Testament backwards and front. They know that the Old Testament pointed the way to a coming Messiah. They had John the Baptist come to them and, and say, here he is. And yet when this Messiah came, they rejected him. They start out looking like a yes, but actually they're a no. These are the guys who, remember, they know the law. They do everything they can to keep the law. In fact, they've invented a whole lot of extra laws on top of the laws. They're the ones who are pulling out the extension cord to really make sure they don't keep the Xbox on. They're teaching the people. They're leading the temple. Of all the people, they look like a yes, but their rejection of Jesus and ultimately of, of John's message about Jesus shows that they are a no. And by contrast, the people who look like a no are actually a yes. Do you see? The tax collectors, the prostitutes, they're actually the ones who are making it into the kingdom of God. And to the Jewish first century mind, tax collector, that's a traitor. Prostitute, well, we all know why that's not moral. But these are the ones making it into the kingdom. Why? Because they're believing this message about Jesus and they are repenting, chucking a yui, they're repenting of their sin. They're the ones making it in. They look like a no, but they're actually a yes. And the irony here is that it's often the people who know that they aren't morally good who end up becoming Christians, right? It's not the people who think that they're morally good. It's the people who know they're not. Now, I've got some really lovely non-Christian friends. Like, literally, they're a blast to be around. They are, they are great. Uh, they're generous. They're kind. I, I really enjoy their company. I enjoy them as people. I tell them that frequently. Like, I, I really love you guys. Uh, but the thing is, when we, when we talk about Jesus and these deeper spiritual things, what it comes down to is, oh, you know, Dan, that's great for you, but, but you know, um, that's for you. I'm glad that, that that helps you. But for me, well, you know, I reckon really it's all just about being a good person, isn't it? And the implication is, uh, I'm, I'm a good person. <laughs> I'm already good enough. And by general standards, by the world standards, certainly they appear to be kind, generous. Um, but uh, why would they need Jesus? I mean, religion is just a crutch for people who need help, isn't it? Well, to that, Jesus says this in Matthew 9, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And we know actually that none of us are righteous. We'll get to that in a moment. But what he's saying here is, I didn't come to call to salvation those who think they're righteous on their own stead. I came for those who know they're sinners. I came for those who know that they need me. And there can even be people who are making the same mistake as the religious leaders here that are, that are part of churches, by the way. They can be around churches for years, even decades. But they're the same as the religious leaders because they're doing all the religious stuff. They've got the, the Bible under their arms. They've memorized a bunch of verses. They've been baptized. They serve on a ministry team. They're leading a growth group. They're up the front leading worship. By the way, I'm not saying that about, about any of the guys here. <laughs> but, 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 you know, that they can be. They can be they, and just to personally, they can be a pastor, right? 
I've met pastors that I'm pretty sure aren't Christians, believe it or not. People can be around church and look very much like a yes, but actually they're a no. They are not going to be part of God's kingdom. They're under a delusion because they think that their religious effort, their knowledge, the the things that they do is what will get them into the kingdom. And they are mistaken. They are deeply, gravely mistaken. Because the things that we do cannot, will not bring us into God's good graces. There are people who look like a yes, but they're actually a no. And this is the second reason why someone might reject Jesus. It's to do with morality. Anyone who thinks they're good enough without him will reject him and will not be saved. And that's a serious thing. It's serious because rejecting Jesus is actually, uh, well, well it's, it's a life and death matter. And that comes out here in this third reason why people reject Jesus. And this one, it's the ultimate reason, okay? If anyone rejects Jesus, this is ultimately why. If you, Christian, end up rejecting Jesus one day, this will be why. The third and ultimate reason that people reject Jesus is defiance. It's defiance. And I know that might sound pretty full on, particularly if you're here this morning and you're, you're visiting or you're, you're not a Christian, you're like, hey, I'm, I'm here at church. <laughs> like, you're just going to tell me I'm defying God. <laughs> well, listen to the story that Jesus tells here. Verse 33, he says, Hear another parable. There's a man who owns a vineyard. Actually, take a look. He doesn't just own a vineyard. Verse 33, he's planted it himself. He set the whole thing up. I did some research this week. Apparently, um, going from, from having um, uh, no grapes and uh, fallow soil to having then a thriving vineyard that's good for wine, takes about four years. This man has spent probably the better part of four years getting this vineyard going. He digs a well. He builds a tower. He's invested so much effort in this thing. And then what he does is he lets it out to tenants. Now, normal thing to do in the first century, okay? You can't be in all places at once. And so let's say you're based in Jerusalem, but you've got your vineyard out here that you've gone and set up. It's essentially like a rental property. And so what happens is the tenants will come and uh, they will live off the land. They will get to eat basically unlimited food. Uh, They have a home that they didn't build. uh, And their payment for this, they don't have to pay any money out of their pockets. All they've got to do is, is look after the vineyard work the vineyard, and then hand over the profits from the grapes to the owner. Pretty sweet gig in the first century, actually. Uh, And so the time comes when uh, these men are asked to bring the grapes, to bring the profit to the owner. So the owner sends some servants out to go and collect it. But then this is where the problem happens. What happens? The men, the tenants, they are there lying in wait for these servants. They've got weapons in their hands. And when the servants come, they see the first one. They beat him up. The second one, they take a sword and run him through. They kill him. The third one's running away, and so they pelt stones at him until he falls down on the ground. Now, if you were the owner of that vineyard, right, this is your rental property, <laughs> what are you going to do to those guys? Right, you're going to skip the whole rental tribunal thing, aren't you? You're going to, it's straight to the cops, and that's if they're lucky. Right, those guys are going down. 
But I want you to see here the patience of the owner. He tries again. In fact, this time he sends even more servants. He puts sort of even more people out there in an effort to convince these guys to fulfill their end of, of the trade. But, of course, it's the same story. They kill those servants too. These guys are, are recalcitrant. They're, they're, they're not going to move. And so the owner then does something truly surprising. He takes his son, his heir, his delight. This one that he's spent not only four years building up, but a lifetime. He's given everything to his son. And he says, surely they'll respect my son. But when the tenants see the son coming, what do they do? Well, just like the religious leaders, they get in a little huddle, right? They say, what are we going to do? Well, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him. Let's have his inheritance. And I don't know what they're thinking. <laughs> like, what kind of plan is that? If they kill the son, is the owner then going to go, checkmate, I guess that you get all of my son's stuff now? <laughs> like, surely not. It's not logical, is it? It's not rational. And yet that's what they do. That when the son comes, they take him, they drag him off the vineyard and they run him through. They kill him, they murder him in cold blood. Story finished. And once again, Jesus has something to say with this story. And so he turns to the religious leaders and he says, so what will the owner do to those tenants? What will he do? After the, the waves of servants and then the son, verse 41, look at their response. This is what they say. He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruit. Now, they don't get it, do they? Because who's he talking about? It's like the scene with David and Nathan the prophet, isn't it? You are the man. <laughs> they don't get that he is in fact talking about them. People who live in God's world and enjoy all that he's grown and, and made for them in, in his creation. And for these gentlemen, um, men who are Israelites, they've lived under God's blessing as a people for centuries and centuries and centuries. But just like the tenants, they haven't brought him the fruit, have they? They aren't doing the Father's will. They're doing the opposite of the Father's will. They look like a yes, they're actually a no. At every point they've turned away from him, the creator of the world, the life giver, they want to enjoy his gifts while not sitting under the giver's authority. And then God in his patience has sent the prophets, right? His servants. He sent them for centuries and centuries to the, the Israelites, calling them to change. And what did they do to the prophets? Rejected them. Even killed them. And now even he has sent his son, his heir, his delight. Surely they will respect my son. But by the end of this week, these very religious leaders will be dragging him, not off a vineyard, but outside the walls of Jerusalem to hang him on a cross and murder him in cold blood. What will the owner do to them? What must the owner do to them after all of this patience. Do you see, the reason why people reject Jesus at the end of the day is ultimately defiance. It's defiance against the Son. Because think about it, even if you are a Christian, right? Think to a time when you were not, or imagine if you were not. Left to our own devices, we all just want to run life our own way, don't we? We want to do what these servants are doing. Everyone else, stay out of my way. 
let me run my life my way and anyone who gets right up in my grill, I'm going to push them aside. And we might not do it with violence, but we'll do it in whatever way we can, passive aggression, saying I don't know, just sort of coasting along and not tackling the real issues. We want to run our lives, our way, our rules, but the reality is the owner isn't far away, friends. The life giver isn't far away. And one day he'll call every single person to bring the fruit of their lives to him. And here's what will happen. You and I will stand before the creator of the universe, the life giver, the one who's given us everything, This God who is immensely patient, the one who sent the prophets, who sent his son, who gave us his word in the Bible, who sent Christians to tell you about him, who sent Jesus to die and rise again as a substitute for your sins who sent me this morning to declare this message and who who did all of this so that our defiance against him can be forgiven. But on that day when you and I stand before him, if we are still rejecting the son, then that's it. Just like in this story, no more chances. The owner will come. The life giver will come. And God's judgment awaits those who who take the life that he gave them and use it to defy the life giver. But right here, And right now, I want you to understand that God is still patient. Friends, he is still patient with you. Hear me on this. There is still a moment of patience here. He is still not willing that you should perish. He is willing that you would come to the Son and not reject him, but respect him. That this Son, who was given over not just as an act of murder, but actually as an act of salvation... This son who alone is morally good enough, perfect because he always did the Father's will. This son who alone, therefore, can stand as our substitute, taking the judgment we deserve on the cross, taking the penalty that our defiance deserves. Jesus takes it so that our defiance can be forgiven and we can be made right with God and we can live rightly in his vineyard, that is, his kingdom under his authority, with him, in fellowship, restored to relationship, under Jesus as our Lord and in him as our Savior. We have this moment now while God is still patient with us. And so that means our response to Jesus is ultimately a matter of life and death. It's vitally important. As verse 42 puts it, Jesus is like a cornerstone. Here's what one looks like. Cornerstone is a piece that sits between two walls of a building. Uh, first century builders, they, they put it in as sort of the, the, the thing that sets those two walls and, and gets them straight. Without a cornerstone, the walls will come crashing down upon you. But with the cornerstone there, the building will stand. And Jesus gives us that image from Psalm 118. The religious leaders would have known it very well. He gives us that image to show that he is that cornerstone. He is the king with all authority, risen to rule. He is the savior that we need. And friends, if you do not turn to the son in faith and repentance, then the house will come crashing down upon you. You will still stand under the judgment of God. But if we turn to him, we will be saved. 
And the thing here in the conclusion, verse 45, is that the elders finally get that he's talking about them, right? The ones who are rejecting the son instead of respecting the son. The ones who preserve their own authority in an attempt to forestall the authority of God. The ones who think they're morally good enough on their own. The ones who are ultimately defying God himself. He, they realize that they're talking about him. And their response, in fear of the crowd, is to go away and plot the murder of Jesus. He might be talking about others as well not just the religious leaders in the first century. He might also be speaking about some of our friends and our family, right? Like, if you're a Christian, think about someone you know who is not currently following Jesus. Just, just picture them in your mind if you could. A friend, a workmate, a family member. I want you to see their rejection for what it is. It's refusing his authority. It's saying, I'm morally good enough on my own. Ultimately, it's defying God. And yes, they might have intellectual reasons. They might have questions that need answering. And, and that's great. Answer the questions. Um, but, but the thing is, you can learn heaps of apologetics. Uh, you can learn an answer to every question that a non-Christian might have. Um, but ultimately, it's not just a changed mind that will cause someone to, return to uh, turn to Jesus. It's a changed heart. It's someone actually needs to desire the son, to desire to live under his authority because they see his authority as good and, and to come to him as saviour because they see him as the only one that can save, realising that they're a sinner in need of grace. And so, yes, learn the apologetics. Yes, um, share the gospel message with them. Do that. <laughs> but more than anything, pray for them. Pray that God would turn their heart to Christ. Pray that he would turn their defiant, stony heart into one that is, is fleshy and open to him. Friends, do that. Anything else you do will be pointless unless God does that work in their life. So pray for them. Perhaps Jesus is speaking there about a non-Christian that you know. But here's the other question. Is he perhaps speaking about you? Perhaps if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, or... You've been around churches for a long time and you've just never really closed it with Jesus. You're still relying on your religious service. Is Jesus speaking about you? And again, maybe you've got intellectual questions about the Christian faith, perhaps legitimate ones. I know that there are answers and, and there are people here who would love to sit with you and listen to you and help you just work through that, whether it's days, weeks, months, whatever. It doesn't matter. We'd love to do that. Please come and chat with me or someone you know if, if you want to do that. But here's the question you need to answer, okay? If it all turns out to be true. If it turns out to be true. If all of this is real. If God really is the creator, the life giver. If Jesus really is a man who lived in the first century and was born of a virgin and died on a cross and rose again from the dead for our sins, if all of that is true, would you then follow him? Would you follow him? Would you submit to his authority? Would you accept that you're not good enough on your own and you need him? Would you set aside your defiance and instead learn to follow the way of Jesus? Because I think the answer for a lot of Aussies is 
No. But it doesn't have to be for you this morning. Maybe there is something different that God is doing in your heart and your life here right now. Will you respond to him? Will you respond to him today? And I'm I'm not going to do something manipulative like get you to come down the front or put up your hand or pray a sinner's prayer with me. But what I am going to do is just invite you to hear Jesus speaking to you now through his word, calling you to turn to him in trust and repentance. Lay down your weapons of defiance and submit to the Son as your King and trust in Him as your Saviour. I'm going to give us a moment now to reflect on that and respond to the Lord in our hearts. Lord, to whom else can we go? For you have the words of eternal life. And for all those who can say it, Lord, this morning we say we believe and we have come to know that you, Lord Jesus, are the Holy One of God. Help us, Lord, to therefore continue clinging to you in faith. And help us, Lord, therefore, to continue repenting towards you, leaving aside the defiance that threatens to derail us. Lord, I pray and we pray specifically for anyone here this morning who might be doing that for the first time or or in some significant way. Lord, guard the seeds of faith that are beginning to grow. Help them, Lord, to, to now know you in the way that you are to be known and to follow you in the way that you are to be followed. In Jesus' name, amen. If that is something, by the way, that you've done this morning, if that was maybe the first time that you've sort of turned to Jesus in faith or in repentance, please share that with someone. It doesn't have to be me. It can be me if you want. But someone that you know here, share that so they can share in the joy and and help you work out what the next steps look like. Um, But for the moment, we're going to share in communion together. So helpers are going to come down the front. This is for all baptized believers to come and participate in. Uh, baptized because just like with John the Baptist, right? Is that from God or is that from man? Well, well, baptism is a gift from God for us in which we take our faith and make it public. And those who are publicly following Jesus then publicly participate in his meal to, to point to his death and point to his